You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, uh, thanks for joining us for this uh, special uh, PPI podcast. I'm Paul Weinstein. I'm a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute and also the uh, director of the public management program at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, We are joined today, and I'm very excited by this, uh, with Representative uh, Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, uh, 6th Congressional District up there in Massachusetts, to talk about uh, all things high-speed rail. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. It's it's uh, it's nice to talk to a fellow high speed rail fan, and I I am a fan. And and basically, you know, having read you know what you've been saying about high speed rail and your work on on the American High Speed Rail Act uh, these last couple of years, I, I I get to feeling that you're a fan too uh, of high speed rail. Well, uh, I guess you could say that, but I prefer to think that I'm a student of transportation and uh, take transportation policy seriously. And I think it can be fun to fly in a plane. And I uh, have to say, I sometimes enjoy driving my car, but I certainly think that high-speed rail should be an option. And when you study it, you realize it's a really good option. It's a better option than the alternatives for many trips. And it's a real travesty that we don't have that here in America. Uh, Absolutely. And that actually uh, leads me to my next question. You actually have an interesting background. I mean, your whole career is interesting. Obviously, your service uh, to your country, your military service, obviously your, your work uh, uh, representing uh, Massachusetts and the, and the 6th District. Um, but also, you worked for a, a rail company in, in Texas for a couple of years. Is that right? I did. I was the managing director and project manager of Texas Central Railway, which is building a high-speed rail line between Dallas and Houston. I still suspect it will be the first completed high-speed rail line in America. And remarkably, it's been doing it's been going mostly with private dollars. I mean, high-speed rail is such a good investment uh, that unlike every other transportation uh almost every other transportation option in America, certainly highways and airports, it's not requiring federal dollars to get this project off the ground. So it'll be transformative for those two cities. Driving between Dallas and Houston takes five or six hours with traffic today. Uh, the plane, the trip I've done many times by plane, uh, you have to figure three hours with all the terminal congestion and everything at both airports. This will get you downtown to downtown in 90 minutes. Or if we go to Chinese speed, it's in 60 minutes and you'll be able to enjoy yourself the whole trip. So it's transformative. And I believe it will be transformative for the country because Americans will see what this can do in their communities too. Yeah, you actually uh, mentioned, and I think this is a great, great point that if we could just finally build one um, sort of top level, right, um, high speed rail system or corridor in this country, then really, the dominoes would kind of fall into place. Is that right? I mean, what you're... That's certainly what we've seen around the world. Spain is an interesting example because there was a tremendous amount of opposition to building high-speed rail in Spain initially. Uh, It's a very provincial country and 
uh, provinces like, you know, the folks down in Barcelona said, this is just a way for Madrid to send, extend its tentacles into our province. And so they were really opposed. Then they got that one line built and every other province wanted one too. And now a few short years later, uh, Spain has one of the best high-speed rail systems in Europe. Uh, in fact, if a train, a high-speed train in Spain uh, is more than a few minutes late, you get your ticket refunded. That's how reliable the system is. Everybody travels it. Uh, it's, a, it's a preferred choice. You can still drive, you can still fly, uh, but people prefer to take the train. It makes perfect sense because if you think about it, you know, with airports, when the first airports came about, you had all these other cities. Once one city built an airport, another city wanted an airport, then a lot of smaller cities wanted airports. I mean, once you see the benefits and the kind of economic vitality that these things bring, it's just, it's a no brainer. You, you, you basically seek out the same thing and it just, it makes perfect sense everywhere in the world, as you pointed out, has started off with one high speed rail corridor and then moved from there. That's right. So if you take the train from Houston, Dallas, a lot of people are going to start asking, why can't I go to Oklahoma City? Uh, if you take the train from Chicago to St. Louis, a lot of people are going to say, you know, why can't I go to Kansas City? Why can't I go further? And we don't think about big quarters in the United States and how transformative this could be. But Chicago to Atlanta is or at least should be a high speed rail corridor. Most Americans would say, oh, no, that seems way too far to go by train. But it's the same distance as Beijing to Shanghai, what is, which is now the most popular high-speed rail corridor in the world. And again, it's popular just because travelers prefer it. You can still take a plane between Beijing and Shanghai. You can certainly drive, but people prefer the train. And what would be transformative about building high-speed rail between Chicago and Atlanta is it wouldn't just improve service for those cities. You know, goodbye delays at O'Hare Airport, um, goodbye, uh, you know, hour-long security lines uh, in Atlanta. It would also connect Indianapolis and Louisville and Chattanooga and Nashville, uh, cities that benefit not at all from just having airport service in Chicago and Atlanta on either end. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's that's a great point. I think one of the things that you're underscoring there too is that it gives it provides another option. I'll tell you something that shuts down the airlines every single day, at least in the summer, and that's thunderstorms. And I'm sorry, but thunderstorms aren't going away. Uh, high speed trains don't get shut down by thunderstorms, by snowstorms. Right, yeah. uh, it's all weather travel. It's 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 so on time that, like I say, in Spain, your train is five minutes late. You get your ticket refunded. Can you ever imagine getting that offer from an American airline? No, we're all right. just accustomed to being stuck on the tarmac for 90 minutes if we're lucky waiting to take off or waiting to get a gate when we land. I mean, it's just our standards are so low in America. We don't realize what this could be. And we pride ourselves on being a country that values freedom, that values choice, that has a free market. But we don't have a free market when it comes to transportation because uh, the federal subsidies have all been going to highways and to airports with no money for high-speed rail. So it's a completely skewed market. Uh, people don't even have the option of taking a high-speed train. Uh, we're just saying, let's put it on the playing field. Let's make it an option, build it where it makes sense, where it makes more sense than the alternatives and give Americans more freedom of choice. You know, so that sort of leads me to another thought, which is, uh, you know, we've tried in the US to obviously build 
but well, I don't know if we've actually tried hard enough, but we've there have been several efforts to build high-speed rail obviously in the United States, going you know back to Lyndon Johnson, I, I, President Clinton, who I worked for, you know, um, pushed for high-speed rail, which led to the Acela, which is obviously not up to the international standards of true high speed. Not really high speed, but Um, right. Nothing. (laughs) Right. President Obama uh, um, obviously had his initiative, which, uh, and we've obviously got the situation in California. What do you think now is, is different about the situation? What, what makes you hopeful that we can maybe finally get over this hurdle? I think we have an administration that wants to be transformative and wants to listen. Now to be perfectly fair, uh, and you've pointed out, Uh, pointed this out in your op-ed, the current proposal, the draft proposal from the Biden administration will not get us there. It's not investing enough money in true high-speed rail. Uh, It's not going to build transformative corridors like um, uh, Houston to Dallas at 200 miles per hour. Uh, But they want to listen and they want to engage. And they've said this is a generational opportunity to invest in infrastructure. The case I'm making is don't squander a generational opportunity to invest in infrastructure by only investing in the last generation's infrastructure. So we're not there yet. We haven't won, but I believe the conditions are right. We have an administration that is aligned philosophically. We just got to sort out the details here and make sure that we're not only investing more money in rail, but that it's truly high speed 21st century rail uh, and not the kind of slow trains that we're used to in America. It's, It's a really sad statistic, but most Amtrak routes today go slower than the same trains did in the 1930s. Yeah, no, you, that, that is absolutely correct. And it is really astounding. Uh, I think one of the things that I find most interesting about your legislation is, is you definitely recognize that we've got to make some important changes in how we've, uh, how we've uh, addressed passenger rail in this country. And one is the importance of the role of the private sector uh, in building and constructing uh, high-speed rail and also potentially in operating it. Can you talk a little bit about what role you think high, uh, the private sector should play and 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 uh, and a little bit about maybe what we've learned from, say, for example, it, the Texas, you know, what's happening in Texas now and a little bit what's happening with with Florida? Absolutely. Well, I think the private sector should play an incredibly important role. Now, that doesn't mean we can count on the private sector to do this on its own, uh, which is what some Republicans seem to want to do. Hey, give billions of subsidies to the highways, um, which, of course, indirectly support all these private trucking companies and all of us private drivers, um, but don't give any money to the high-speed rail lines that are supposed to compete for, for, for passengers. You know, we have to um, have uh, a level playing field here so that you can um, invest in, in different modes and people can truly have freedom of, of choice when it comes to how they want to travel. But just like we have private trunking companies and just like we have um, an incres- incredibly successful private freight railway network and just like we have private airlines that use publicly funded airports, uh, I think that should be a model for high-speed rail as well. And If you think back in in American history, uh, you had faster trains when you had private uh, companies running them. 
uh, before Amtrak took over. Amtrak is a difficult road to hold. Uh, they uh, have been tasked with a tough federal mandate, and they sort of seem to have their hands tied every step of the way. Uh, so I've been a consistent advocate for giving more funding to Amtrak in Congress, and will continue to do so. Uh, but let's not think that that's the only option here uh, for high-speed rail. Uh, many high-speed rail lines all around the world are operated uh, by private companies or semi-private uh, companies or public-private partnerships uh, that bring the innovation, the market competitiveness of the private sector uh, into uh, transportation. And just like you have American and Delta competing for passengers by offering better service, uh, or maybe in that case, at least not the worst service um, on board, uh, you know, you can really see the private sector uh, helping um, helping the high speed rail, uh, helping high speed rail development really succeed. Uh, just like the private sector is such an important part of our economy and every other aspect of our of our world here in America. You, you talked a little bit about uh, 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 the Biden proposal, and and so if you were going to sit down with with the president and sort of make some recommendations on what he might want to do. Or adjustments to his proposal. Obviously, I'm guessing one of them would be funding uh, the amount that he would put towards this. Uh, your, your plan does over 200 billion, um, uh, and the Biden plan, depending how you look at it, it, it it's obviously um, it's 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 considerably smaller, uh, and it's and it's spread out into to different uh, different things besides high speed rail. Uh, some of it is uh, obviously you know restarting some of the longer or re, uh, recreating some new connections between certain cities that, that lost rail service, for example. What would you say to the president uh, if, if you're gonna give him some advice about how to make high-speed rail happen? First of all, uh, make one or two quarters succeed if you do nothing else. Uh, because as we discussed before, once Americans experience this for themselves, they're gonna want to build more high-speed rail. So I wanna see $200 billion up front. In fact, I'd rather see $500 billion. Just, just put it this way. Um, we've invested $500 billion at the federal level in highway projects just in urban areas between 1993 and 2017. It's an interesting number because during that same period, congestion has grown in these same areas by 144%. So we've basically completely wasted $500 billion on highways in just, just since 1993, uh, of course, we've been investing in our interstates since the 1950s. We haven't been investing in high-speed rail at all. I mean, literally nothing. So it would be much better to be talking about $500 billion or a trillion dollars in high-speed rail. But what I, my advice to the Biden administration is give us some money, but don't spread it too thin. Don't take a whole bunch of projects and make old-fashioned rail lines go slightly faster. Uh, really invest it in true high-speed rail so Americans can see what this is all about. And then they'll demand that we invest more in the future. Uh, and, and, and representatives on both sides of the aisle will support this in Congress because they'll see what a difference it makes uh, for their communities. Imagine if Eisenhower had come and said, oh, no, 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 we shouldn't build an interstate system. We should just add a few lanes to the state highway system. You know, Don't build Route 95. Just add a lane to Route 1. And yeah, it's still going to have stoplights and it's still going to be 35 miles per hour through downtown. You know, maybe there's a couple places where we can up it to 45 miles per hour for downtown. Wow, that would be amazing. 
No, that's not the approach that we took. We said, we want to build a transformative highway system. And that's what we got. Well, now it's time to build a transformative high-speed rail system, uh, a, a way to go 250 miles per hour, not 70 miles per hour. That's the future. The future is real in the rest of the world. We just need to bring it home to America. Well, I won't put you on the spot and ask you. Uh, I, I know you're uh, you're a, a big fan of the Texas uh, uh, route, but I won't I won't push you uh, uh, to sort of name what you think the other routes that would be most successful are. So. Well, I think the important point, Paul, is that it's a it's a lot more expansive than people think. And I love to use that Chicago to Atlanta example, not only because it's it's longer than most people think would be viable for high speed rail, but because it touches so many places in between um, that have kind of been left off the map with our current transportation system and um you know, it's not that easy to fly from Indianapolis to Atlanta. There's not much service. Um, imagine if there were a train every half hour um, in either either direction, what opportunities that would mean for basing yourself, living in Indianapolis and working in Chicago or having a business base there that has important connections um, throughout the region. So there are a lot of places where that makes sense around uh, around the country. You might not take a train all the way from Chicago to LA because even at high speed rail speeds, that would still take a while. Uh, but you could certainly take a train from uh, LA to Denver and you could certainly take a train from uh, Denver to, to Chicago. So you can quickly see how um, by connecting these regions, uh, we end up building a national network. Right. And I think one of the things that uh, many opponents of high speed rail miss uh, is that by, you know, a lot of them sort of say like, well, look, you know, you need a user fee. That's, you know, the gas tax is a user fee that pays for our roads and the, you know, the airports are paid for by, um, you know, ticket taxes and other fees. But what they're missing is that if you have high speed rail, it takes pressure off the roads. It takes pressure off of the, uh, off of the airports and there's less wear and tear on the roads. So in some ways you're, you're making the, the, the roads last longer, if, you know, by having high speed rail. There's obviously other benefits, environmental benefits as well and economic, huge economic benefits, but. That's right. Uh, in fact, you could, um, you could certainly make the argument that, uh, I mean, ironically, investing more in roads actually increases congestion. That's literally what we've seen. I showed you that statistic earlier, um, whereas investing in high-speed rail can help decrease congestion. Um, so if you want to see a, a bright future for our highways, uh, pour the money into high-speed rail, not into highways themselves. I mean, that's an ironic conclusion, but there's some real um, real truth to it. But I think the, the other important thing to keep in mind is that if we get to the point where we have a truly national system, look, most Americans are going to prefer to travel by high-speed train because it's just so much nicer and faster and cleaner and safer than the alternatives. And at that point, you can pay for a lot of the system by having user fees. But just as with the highways, just as with the airports, it takes that initial investment. We made that initial investment to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars in our highways. We made that initial investment uh, in, in our airports uh, to get this, these services off the ground. Uh, that's what we're asking to do here as well. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you, Congressman. Uh, I know we are uh, running out of uh, time here. So I don't know if there's uh, any last thoughts you might want to, to share, the things we haven't really touched upon. Um, I'll give you a chance to sort of do that if you like or... Well, I would just say, you know, 
I could be making the case to you here that high-speed rail is way more expensive than the alternatives, but it's better for the environment. It's a faster way to travel. It's better for our communities because of the time kind of walkable downtown developments that it naturally incentivizes. Um, it's it's better for our economies because it it's better at interconnecting regions and all these things. And therefore, it's worth spending this additional money to get high-speed rail. But the truth is that it's actually less expensive. And we've seen that uh, with a new study that came out about the Cascadia Corridor in the Pacific Northwest, connecting uh, Portland to Seattle to Vancouver, building that high-speed rail line. So you can go 200, 250 miles per hour between those cities. It costs half as much as simply adding one lane in, in each direction to the highway. And we've learned that adding lanes to highways actually makes congestion worse. And at your best, in, in the middle of the night, you're only going 70 miles per hour, you could be going 250. So let's just be smart about how we're spending our tax dollars here. Let's not waste them. Let's make the smart investments with the best return. In so many places, it's high-speed rail. It doesn't mean no one's going to force you to take the train. If you're a critic and you just say, oh, no, I, I would rather be strapped into a tiny seat in a pressurized aluminum tube 30,000 feet in the air and then sit 90 minutes on the tarmac when I land. Hey, you can do that. You can, you can buy that airplane ticket. The rest of us are going to be traveling by a high-speed train. That's the future, and we can make it reality here in America. Congressman, uh, great points, and thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your, your thoughts today with us. So. Thank you, Paul. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.